Shabbat Shalom, everyone. So yesterday morning, Kathleen, you probably didn't realize you were going to trigger the teaching for today, but um, Kathleen posted, um, or she shared a picture on Facebook, and I don't know who saw it, who didn't, but there was a billboard, and on it, it had a message displaying the statement, something is seriously wrong when the world is offended by everything but sin. And we can easily relate to that statement. I think anyone who's here, anyone who considers them a disciple of the, of the Messiah, who follows God, can relate to this. Because the sentiment expresses the age in which we live. For we truly do live in an age where good is called evil and evil is called good. Vices that were once considered sinful or even if so they, people didn't go as far as to say sinful. They were seen as either being morally or mentally depraved or simply being outside the pale of normal society. Things that the society used to shun and acknowledge as being wrong, we now see those same behaviors. At first it was, well, we just need to tolerate them. But now we even go much further and, everyone's, and we get these messages saying, well, no, you're actually to celebrate those behaviors. And you're to even see them as virtues. And then you see the flip as well. Long-held virtues and even some of the commandments that are given by God are now charged today with not only just being outdated custom and habits. 20, 30 years ago, that's usually what you heard. But now we see, and, it, and we even see it creeping into the body of believers, or at least those some churches who claim they're a part of the body, where they say, no, those old virtues, those old, or even some of those commandments, they're products of a racist or a misogynistic society. That, um, you know, they were developed to um, establish and then preserve a patriarchal dominance over others. And they even look, they go so far as to even say, you know, some of these things that we would say coming out of Scripture as virtues or commandments, they'll even now say, well, actually those are sins and there is no atonement for them. There's nothing you can do about being forgiven or overcoming. We all recognize this. This is the world we live in. In fact, I didn't give any specific examples because I, I imagine that as I was talking and just describing broadly, you probably each were thinking of examples in your own head. But what we have to recognize also is not just acknowledging the, day, the, the time that we are in today, but that as, even though it seems like it's more in our face, it's more preva- prevalent, it's more present, the reality is that this is not an exclusive phenomenon to this particular point in history. This is really nothing new, as the scripture says, there's nothing new under the sun. The reality is that those who seek to obey the commandments of God, to live a Christ-centered life, we often have been labeled as having evil intentions or even carrying out acts of evil by those who want nothing to do with the living God of Israel. You can go all the way back almost uh, 17, 1800 years, 
And it may seem odd to us, but did you know that in pagan Rome, it was the, it was the followers of Christ, it was the Christians who were actually considered to be atheists? And they were considered atheists because they didn't acknowledge the full pantheon of all the gods that the Romans worshipped. Early Christians, the early followers of Christ, were also accused of cannibalism. Because there was this talk about eating the body and drinking the blood of this Messiah. So they were accused of that. Even when the, the Roman Empire fell and the four, began to fall in the 400s, the Romans, many of the pagan Romans, they blamed the Christians. They said this is a result of their atheism and their refusal were being punished because of these Christians refusing to worship and to sacrifice to these pagan gods. So this, these attacks go all the way even back to then. Today, we also see non-believers, and I would say sadly some of the more progressive churches, they'll condemn believers who hold that Yeshua is the only means to the Father and to eternal life. Yeshua said that himself. You can't, how do you get around that? You can't really massage what Yeshua says there to mean anything else. But they, these people, again, they, they are outside of the belief, but there's even some who at least claim to be inside the belief who will say, well, no, that, to, to claim that there's only one way to God and that's through Yeshua, that's too narrow-minded. It reflects a bigoted attitude or an intolerance for others. Or they'll say it's a prideful elevation of your own self or your own beliefs. For the modern pluralist or the true believer in multiculturalism, these are unpardonable sins. You can't say one way is better than another. Even in Messianic Judaism, we get attacked. Did you know that the Jewish Anti-Defamation League, which if you just go by the title, would sound like, okay, someone who's against anti-Semitic attacks, someone who's against um, bigotry and hatred towards the Jews, they actually consider us to be anti-Semitic. They say Messianic congregations, especially those, if you're a, you claim Messianic Judaism, but you weren't born an ethnic Jew, you're being anti-Semitic because you are appropriating their culture because you are stealing their identity and trying to adapt it as your own, and that's not showing respect to it. So what is good is called evil, what is evil is called good. Now why does this occur? Why do we find ourselves in these situations, and not just today, but throughout time? How is it that those who would seek a Torah-observant life that those who earnestly work to show self-sacrificing love to God and to others, that those who are the disciples of Mashiach and worshipers of the living God, the God who is the author of justice and righteousness and holiness, how can those people be the ones considered wrong-minded, sinful, and even evil by others in the world? How can the same position, the same attitude, the same zeal be seen as a pursuit of righteousness and holiness by some, while being viewed as contemptible and worthy of condemnation by others. If we go to an instance in the Torah, I think it really illuminates this, why this occurs. If you recall when Israel fled from Egypt, 
We read of the physical event, of a physical event that mirrors the social ones that I'm describing this morning. As you may recall, God did not lead the Israelites in the most direct route to Canaan, but rather he turned them along, as he led them, he turned them alongside the sea, which Pharaoh, who then pursued him, was able to then trap them at the sea. Pharaoh sends out his chariots to pursue them, to essentially wipe them out, or if there's any survivors, return them back to their bondage. Of course, as we know, when the Egyptian army reaches the Israelites, God directly intervenes. But before he opens the sea, as we all immediately think, we have to remember that he intervened in another way, in that he set himself as a pillar of cloud and fire between the two camps. Over that night, the pillar stood there between the Egyptian armies and the Israelite camp. Now let's read of this occurrence and listen to how that cloud is described in Exodus 14, 19 through 20. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that one camp came not near the other at night. So in these verses here, we see the pillar of cloud described in two ways. Simultaneously, it's described as both darkness and as light. The pillar stood between the two camps, but to the Egyptians, it was a cloud of darkness. It obscured their vision. It didn't allow them to progress. They couldn't even see the Israelites. But on the other, in the other camp, from the other perspective, this cloud was a cloud of light. It allowed them to see by night. So they're both looking from different perspectives at the same cloud and see entirely different things. Same phenomenon, but viewed opposite simply by the position of where one stood. And I'm not really even saying it's a physical position. I'm not saying one side of the cloud was dark and one side of the cloud was light. But it's a spiritual position. Where does one stand with God? And that's how you perceive what the cloud looks like. If you're in a position of being accounted as one of his called out people, one of the children of Avraham, you see the light. If, however, you're accounted as being a member of the world, of Olam Hazeh, and you, you know nothing about the, true, the one true God, it, you, you perceive it as nothing but dark. And why is it that those of the world, those who do not belong to God, not only do they f- fail just to see the light, but they actually confuse it as darkness. It's not, again, that they just don't see it, but when they look at it, they just see darkness. The simple, straightforward forward answer to this question is provided in John 1, 4 through 5, which says... In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Thus, those who do not belong to God, those who remain part of the world, because of their rejection of his call to be holy, the rejection of God's instructions, the rejection of his Son, they're not able to discern the light of God because they can't even comprehend it. They just can't understand it. They, They have no way of of assessing it, of interacting with it, of perceiving it. Due to the spiritual darkness in which they reside, when they're confronted by the light of God, which of course is Yeshua, as John's making clear here, they just simply can't perceive it. They don't see it at all. So it's not that they see the light and they reject it, but they don't even see the light that's there. 
The reason those who reject God, those who reject God have become part of the darkness, and that's, that's part of why they can't see, is because they're actually part of the darkness, is because in their turning away from the Lord and embracing servitude to sin and death, they have been given over to that darkness. In other words, God's removed his light completely from them. Paul describes this occurrence and the reason for it in Romans 1, 20 through 25. For the invisible things of him from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him, not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creepy things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So Paul says here that originally mankind, mankind actually, they did behold the light. They saw the light of God. And they saw it, therefore they knew the invisible things of the creator, and they understood his eternal power and his divine nature as it was expressed through the creation. Yet despite witnessing and experiencing the light, Mankind did not glorify it, in that we did not revere it and give it the honor that it deserved. But rather, we sought out self-reverence, and we tried to steal the honors of God. Thus, we followed the foolish and the dark intentions of our hearts. Mankind did this by taking the creation and then elevating it, trying to elevate it, from their perspective, above the Creator. It wasn't enough for us simply to be the stewards of creation. That's what God was part of our, that was the first command really laid upon um, mankind, was to be the steward of his creation. That wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to have the, the God-granted authority over it, to tend the garden, to name the animals, as we read in Genesis. But instead, we want, the man wanted something more. They want, mankind wanted to seek, they sought to place themselves above God. This caused mankind to not only lose access to the light, but it ultimately led us to become unfamiliar with it as we substituted our own created truths and our own created gods for the one true God. We replaced with lies what was the, true, the truth and the light. Seeing that those who have surrendered to the darkness, have replaced the truth with a lie, it helps us understand more of the words in John 3, 18 through 21. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth the truth cometh to the light, that is, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. So those who are in the darkness, they tend to shun the light in a sense of they're just in denial about it. Again, they don't perceive it. They don't even acknowledge that it's there or that it exists. 
And the reason Yeshua gives for this, why, are they, why do they go into this state of denial, this state of essential blinding themselves? It's because they've given themselves over to their own lusts and to their desires, whatever those might be. And therefore, having given themselves into their lusts and their desires, they come to hate the light. Because what does the light do? If you perceive it, if you acknowledge it, what does that light do? It reveals the lusts and the desires. It reveals our sins. Having their deeds revealed to them as evil causes them to hate it. And they're going to shun the light. Because they don't want their sins to be accounted for. They don't want the sins to be called wrong or evil or against the will of God. And I don't think Yeshua is saying that they don't want their sins revealed because they feel shame about it either. That's not really the, I mean, that might be, those of us who know the light and who have seen it, when we sin, what's our response when, we're, when the light shines on it? We feel the shame of it, or at least we should. We feel the conviction, the Holy Spirit working in you is, is bringing that conviction there. But those in the dark, they don't have that sense Rather, it's pride, it's contempt for having to be that the, of the idea that I might be held accountable for my actions. For because they, for they, if they've entered into the darkness as a result of trying to assert control over themselves, in essence, wanting to become kings and gods onto themselves, they certainly don't want to see how crooked they are to some other measuring rod, some divine plumb line uh, that is given by the creator of the universe. And of course, what is that? that ultimately, what is the plumb line? It's the word of God, but it's the Messiah. It's Yeshua is the plumb line. And Yeshua is the light. We, they don't want to even acknowledge that there is this standard that they might be compared to. For when they are shown to be crooked against this higher standard, it is a reminder that they are not a power unto themselves, but they will one day be held accountable to a higher king. Opposite of those who love and continue to embrace the darkness of their own vanities and their own thoughts are those who do accept the Messiah. They accept the light of the world. As such, we find multiple words of encouragement throughout the apostolic writings that we are to shun the darkness. Those who know the light were to shun that darkness, which, was, which should have just be, been a part of our old lives. And that darkness should have died, and only should the light now reside. Yeshua instructed in Luke 11, 35-36. So watch out that the light in you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light, without any dark part, it will be wholly illuminated, as when the lamp illuminates you with its light. Likewise, Paul taught the following in Ephesians 5, 8 through 14, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 9. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now ye are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove, reprove them. But it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and the Messiah shall give thee light. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that, they, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. For we are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, 
But let us watch and be sober, for they that sleep sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. And finally, we hear in 1 John 2, 8 through 11. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness, and knowing not whether he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. So once we begin to understand that perceiving light and perceiving darkness, that it's a matter of where one stands with God, it's their spiritual position with God, we not only then can begin to understand why the world considers the righteous of God to be ignorant, to be immoral, and even in some cases they call us evil, but we can also understand why people respond differently to the gospel message when they encounter it. After all, we've all likely witnessed that while some individuals appear to receive the gospel the very first time they hear it, there are others who, despite being raised in a family, in an environment that constantly embraced the gospel, that they themselves never received it. In other people, they, we see people who do eventually come to receive it, but it's only after hearing it from multiple individuals across various venues and life events. And sometimes you're left wondering, well, why is it the first 50 times they heard the gospel, there was no response? But yet some seemingly insignificant moment all of a sudden brings them to the faith. Why are these experiences so different? Our first reaction often is to assume that it's a matter of technique or the sophistication of the argument being made in the presentation of the gospel. We tend to believe that if we can just master the correct line of reasoning and apologetics, or if we can share the right personal story, whether it be our own or someone else's, then we can strike the chord of understanding in the individual that will allow them to see the truth of the Gospels as we see it. But yet nothing in Scripture actually would confirm that this is what makes the difference in who accepts and doesn't accept the truth of the Mashiach and his resurrection. For while we are certainly instructed by the word that we are to study the word and we're to be ready at all times to give an apologia, that is a defense of our faith, there is no specific step-by-step -step process on how you win souls to God. In reality, such approaches are the creation of churches and seminaries and universities who have tried to make missionary work and evangelism merely a, a skill set or a trade to be mastered or learned, as if it's the same as becoming a nurse or an accountant or an engineer. Yet when we look at what the scriptures do tell us, we see that the reception of the gospel, the one's response to the gospel, has everything to do with the condition of the individual's heart who hears it. Although we're not going to look at the parable of the sower this morning, that parable provides a perfect picture of this, of what I'm talking about here. Because what influences the various yields? It's not the technique of the sower. Never, never does Yeshua talk about that. The sower is just indiscriminately spreading seed. 
It's the type of ground upon which that seed falls. The image of the sower, though, it reflects Paul's discussion about his own ministry that we find in 2 Corinthians. This is a letter written primarily as a defense of himself. Paul's responding to accusations that he's untrustworthy and insincere because he failed to keep a promise to return to Corinth immediately after taking a journey among the churches of Macedonia. He was delayed. In his response, he presents himself as a servant who seeks what is best for those with whom he shares the good news, rather than what is always best or expedient for himself. In this defense, he comes to a point where he talks about the need for steadfastness despite opposition and a lack of positive responses to that message. We read in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6, the following. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in trickery, nor distorting the word of God, but by the open proclamation of the truth, commending ourselves to every person's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of the Messiah, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Messiah Yeshua as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants on account of Yeshua. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of the Messiah. So mirroring that physical example in Exodus that I started with this morning, The Egyptians looked on the cloud, they saw only darkness. The Israelites looked upon it, they saw only light. Paul here speaks of two groups of individuals, or you could say two camps. And how do they view the good news of Mashiach resurrected? They see it very differently. One sees it as darkness, one sees it as light. To those who are lost and have not accepted the gospel, they only see darkness because its truth remains hidden from them. They are blinded, Paul says, by the God or the power of this world. And so the light of the gospel remains hidden to them because of the blindness. Think of it this way, just as if you had a blind individual, it doesn't matter what type of lights you use, what wattage you use, how you position the lights, you're not going to help that person be able to see because it's not about making it brighter or getting it into their eyes. They lack the ability to see it. Likewise, the methods and the arguments you use to share the good news is not going to impact a blinded person, someone who's been blinded by the powers of this world, to all of a sudden see see the truth and the light of the gospel. It requires a change of heart, a change only the Ruach of God can cause. Because the veil has to be lifted for the light in order to be seen. This is why Paul writes the following in 2 Corinthians 3, 14-16. But their minds were hardened. For unto this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Messiah. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Like those in the camp of the children of the Israelites, those who see the truth of the gospel, they are able to see the light, and thus they see the Messiah who is the image of God. They have a revealed knowledge of the light, but this is only because their heart was of a condition that caused them to distinguish between the light and the dark. 
and to be drawn then toward the light and toward the glory of God. Even more so in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we see again that it is the work of the Ruach, HaKodesh, and it is the heart of individuals that determine whether or not they remain in the camp of Pharaoh or they transition to the camp of the Israelites. In the earliest parts of the first letter, Paul is, show, is showing the believers in Corinth that their allegiance should be only to Yeshua. It should not be to him or any of the other apostles who brought forth the message. And in doing so, he states that it was not by elegant speech, it was not by sound logic, it wasn't by practical philosophy as measured by the world, that, they, that none of those things made the difference in whether or not they received the good news. Instead, Paul gives full credit to God in these matters. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5 and 9 through 14 says, And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come as someone superior in speaking ability or wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing except among you except Yeshua the Messiah and him crucified. I also was with you in weakness and fear and in great trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of mankind, but on the power of God. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the human heart, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among people knows the thoughts of a person except the spirit of the person that is within him? So also the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul says that he came to them not in excellency of speech or in wisdom, at least how the world measures such, such things, but rather in weakness and dull language. And as a side, I find that interesting because, you know, when we read Paul, we're often, like, greatly impressed by his knowledge and by his wisdom. And, you know, he sometimes twists himself in knots because he's, like, thinking at four or five different levels at one time and trying to anticipate every argument against him. And, you know, Peter says that's why Paul is hard to understand. But this would suggest, by, you know, the way Paul talks about how he came to them, he may have been brilliant in the written word, but maybe he wasn't the best speaker. That's one possibility. Or, one, or the other is maybe he truly did intentionally humble himself when he went and spoke. We don't, we don't know for sure. We just know that he says, I didn't come to you with this excellency of speech or wisdom. And he says he did this, though, so that it wasn't the logic or it wasn't the eloquence of the message that won them over. But rather, it was by the Spirit that people could perceive the truth of the good news that was shared with them. Paul understood that if people only came to the faith because of a rousing sermon that got people excited or made them feel motivated, you know, you get the excitement of a crowd going, you have the altar call, all the people come running forward. 
Paul, he, in here, it seems like Paul's saying, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I was after. Because in those types of things, the faith may not stand for long. He understood that that's not a good grounding of the faith because what happens when that emotional experience is gone? If you were simply responding to an emotional experience, an event that got you excited, what happens when you're tested but that is, is no longer there? Paul wanted the people to come to the faith grounded on the Spirit. Likewise, Paul did not want the Corinthians' faith to rest upon the perceived rationality or the reason behind the arguments he was given. Because again, it would be a faith based upon his abilities and his rhetorical skills rather than upon the power of God. If they had been grounded on Paul's talents, it could easily be eroded. That faith could be eroded if all of a sudden Paul's reputation among the factions in Corinth began to erode. And again, it did. That's what First and Second Corinthians, a lot of it, especially Second Corinthians, is about. His reputation was being eroded by people attacking him. So how much better is it that your faith is grounded upon what God did, not upon me as simply a messenger? Paul then continues to show that for the same reason that the dark cannot be perceived, nor can it comprehend the light, those who have truly accepted the gospel have done so absent of any human wisdom or elegance that they may have been, that they may have had, or that they may have seen in such proclamations and teachings of the good news. Because earthly wisdom is completely incapable of comprehending the wisdom of God. Only the Spirit of God, which is of the light, can comprehend the light and bring understanding of the light. And this is why the natural man cannot receive the things of the Ruach, of the Spirit, because the natural man remains in the dark and will only perceive the dark, just as the Egyptian army only perceived the darkness of the pillar of cloud. Paul speaks more about the relationship between man's wisdom and God's wisdom as it relates to the good news in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the understanding of those who have understanding. I will confound. Where is the wise person? Where is the scribe? Where is the, de the debater of this age? Has God not made the foolish wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, for God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach the Messiah crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are of the called, both Jews and Greeks, Messiah the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than mankind and the weakness of God is stronger than mankind. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the insignificant things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no human may boast before God. But it is due to him that you are in Messiah Yeshua, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, just as it is written, 
Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. When we take all that Paul has to say here about earthly and heavenly wisdom, we see an important reality each of us needs to keep in mind when we're out there witnessing to the gospel and to the Messiah, both through our actions and through our words. And that reality is that when people come to the faith, they don't come with an open and objective mind that considers the rationality or the reasonability of the message. And then they decide to receive or reject the good news based on that. They don't receive it based on that. They don't reject it based on that. That's often the lie that's out there. Is they'll say, well, I'm rational, or I, you know, I, I, I'm of the educated modern mind, and so all of this um, stuff in you know, a book written 2,000 years ago is irrational. And so, then, so they act like it was object, objectivity. It was science that brought me to reject all of that. No, that, that's not what, what occurs. They, every one of us come with biased minds, with closed minds, with um, faults and misperceptions and inflating ourselves, all of that. What is true is that people come to the faith by hearing the good news. That's it. They hear the good news. And then depending on whether or not their heart receives it in the spirit... That will determine whether that good news, that message of the gospel, appears to them either as foolishness or it appears to them as wisdom. Does it appear as darkness or as light? It's clear that the wisdom of this world is cloaked in darkness and is incapable of perceiving the light because it requires the Ruach to reveal the wisdom of God and perceive the light that is within it. As such, we can better understand why the world often calls the pursuits of God's people either ignorant or evil, despite, their being, despite them being done in righteousness and according to God's instruction. But again, as I said at the beginning, we shouldn't be surprised by this reaction by the darkness. After all, are, we, are not we as the servants of God supposed to expect the same treatment and the same reactions from the world as our Mashiach? In fact, the more righteous and in step with God our lives become, the more likely our actions will be called unrighteous and even evil by the world which remains in darkness. The more we distinguish ourselves, the more we walk in the light, the more the world's not going to recognize us and accuse us of being the exact opposite of what we are. Just look at the dismissal of Yeshua and the accusations made against him by those who remained of the world and could not perceive him as the light. In John 12, 37 through 41, we see how those of the world could perceive the miracles performed by Yeshua, but not the power and the authority that stood behind those miracles. But though he had performed so many signs in their sight, they still were not believing in him. This happened so that the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he, had, which he spoke, would be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah again said again, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts, so that they will not see with their eyes and understand with their heart and be converted, and so I will not heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. Even more egregious than dismissing Yeshua out of blindness, which is what John's re referring to there. There were also those who opposed him, that opposed him, that, true, that came right out and did attribute evil actions and intentions to him. 
They criticized and judged him for keeping bad company, dining among sinners and tax collectors. They said he deceived the people and he caused division between them through deceit. They accused him of being a liar and a false prophet. They even said he was insane. Yet above these great offenses, even worse, they accused the Son of God, the one who walked perfectly in the Father's name of blasphemy. We see this in John 10, 31 through 33. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Yeshua replied to them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, We are not stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And most offensive of all, we see that there was some who outright considered Yeshua's miracles as evil, saying that the source of his power was of the devils. Matthew 12, 22 through 28 says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to Yeshua, and he healed him so that the man was unable to speak, talk, and could see. And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Bezelabab. Bezel, I can't say it. Bezelab, yeah, you got it. The ruler of the demons. Knowing their thoughts, Yeshua said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he has become divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if by Beelzebub I cast out the demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out the demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The inability of the dark to not only perceive the light, but like the armies of Pharaoh, see the light as darkness. They act, when they look at the light, they see it as darkness. This is the greatest sin. For in attributing darkness, attributing evil intentions as the source of the light, that's what the, when you read what they're saying to Yeshua, who is the light, and saying these miracles you work are being done by a power of Beelzebub, the Lord of Flies, as a demon, by the power of a demon. They are saying the light is evil. They're saying the light is dark. And this is the unpardonable sin. It's beyond denying the light. It's beyond failing to perceive the light. The unpardonable sin is to blaspheme the spirit that reveals the light by attributing evil as the source of the light. In other, in other words, calling the light darkness. For such a profane use of the Lord's name in vain cannot be forgiven. Yeshua says as much in Matthew 12, 31 through 32. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this age or in the age to come. And these words spoken by the Mashiach echo the statement proclaimed by the prophet Isaiah against those who would mix darkness and light and who would call good evil and evil good. Isaiah 5, 20 through 24 states, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. 
Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward, and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stumble, the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go, out, shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. They rejected the law, and they despised the word. Yeshua is the word and the light. They despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. In conclusion, let me just give a couple words of caution coming out of this teaching. First, when people come against you, when they come against your Torah-pursuant life, realize, though, that's not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're not perceiving the light of Torah, and they're not perceiving the light of Messiah. But the veil may be lifted one day from their eyes. We don't know that. When they come against you, they're not attributing evil to the Spirit of God. So don't begin to think if you're attacked for your faith that that becomes the unpardonable sin. Only those who look at the Word of God and call its righteous teachings teachings evil are guilty of such an offense. Secondly, this teaching should not be an excuse for self-righteousness. For those who belong to the light, we have to remember just because we belong to the light, we can perceive the light, we're still capable of sin, we're still capable of stumbling in the dark, into darkness from time to time. The good news is that that doesn't necessarily cause us to lose perception of that light. And we can see that light, we can see where we need to go to return back to the light of God. Finally, rather by discerning that not all see the light. So acknowledging that not all see the light as we do. This should be for us a better understanding of why the pursuit of righteousness is, is seen as wickedness by the world. For in their darkness, they cannot perceive the light. And we can better understand, therefore, our role in the world is to carry forth that light. We carry it forth in how we live our lives and how we speak of our abiding faith in Yeshua, the Mashiach. But not every, you, play, you may place that light on the hill, but that doesn't mean everyone's going to see it. Again, that takes the work of the Spirit. So don't get discouraged if you're living the life as best you can every day, trying to be Torah pursuant, if you're sharing the good news, you're sharing the reason for your faith every day, you truly have got that light on your hill, don't get discouraged because no one's responding to it. You're in a dark world. They're not, not everyone's going to perceive it. The Spirit's going to have to work. And when the Spirit does work on that heart, and it's a receptive heart, it's good, fertile soil, that light that you've always got out there will then be picked up by the person who needs to see it. Matthew, let's close with Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen. It's our duty to praise the master of all, to ascribe greatness to the author of creation. For he made us unlike the nations of the lands and has not placed us like the families of the earth. He has not made our portion like theirs and our lot like all their multitudes. 
and we bend the knee and bow and acknowledge our thanks before the King over kings, the Holy One, blessed be he. He stretches out heaven, establishes earth's foundation, and the seat of his glory is in the heavens above, and the presence of his power is in the most exalted heights. He is our God, there is none other. True is our King, there is nothing beside him. As it is written in his Torah, and you shall know this day and take to your heart that the Lord, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below, there is none other. Amen.